So John chapter 20. And we'll read from verse 11 again. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Women, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Just maybe one more passage that might help us later on if I remember to come back to it. Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Where there's a debate going on between Jesus and the Sadducees. We didn't believe uh, in the resurrection and so forth. And they set Jesus um, a, a riddle. And Jesus is speaking in that setting. Luke 20 verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her, they were trying just to ridicule Jesus. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him, any more questions? Amen. May God bless his, his word to us. I was um, saying earlier that we mustn't um, overstress a truth, namely that uh, we can learn things in hard times that we can't learn in any other way. But there's no doubt uh, truth in it that in hard times we we can learn um, we we can learn things that we can't learn in any other way. We just mustn't overstress that. Uh, the great composer Elgar was listening to um, a soprano singing along with uh, one of his friends. And his friend turned to Elgar and said, hasn't she got an amazing voice? 
And Elgar said, yes, it, it is good, but she'll not be truly great until something happens that breaks her heart, that somehow in sadness things are released, that maybe we, we just can't touch in, in any other way. As I say, it doesn't mean we overstress that, but it, it is true that difficult um, circumstances can be times where we learn precious things, that there are treasures to be discovered in darkness. And uh, we can see the goodness of God even in dark places. I, I think that when I look back over my life, some of uh, the people that have helped me learn most have been people who have gone through dark things. It's just fact. Uh, I remember hearing a, the wife of a, a Bible college principal, and uh, she was speaking to a new intake of students just um speaking about her life and sharing a bit about her and her husband and so on. And she simply said, I, I have four children, uh, one of whom is living in heaven with Jesus, and the other three are living with me here on earth. And you know, in a way that nothing else has done, that brought home to me the reality of what Jesus says in that passage that we've just read, where he describes God as the God who is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the God of the living and not the dead. In other words, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were alive to him because he was giving himself that title and that name long after they'd left this earthly scene. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. You now I find that quite profound. I remembered it when my own father died. And the way I look at it now is that... Um, Actually, I still have an earthly father. It's just he's living in heaven with Jesus, and he's not here on earth anymore. That he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of George, my uh, father. Not he was the God of George, but he is the God of George, because George, my father, is still alive. You know, I could I could almost develop that a bit. Um, have you ever noticed that? Um, have you ever been nudged by this? Is nothing to do with the sermon, but I'll just go there anyway. Anyway, <laughs> have you ever noticed? You know that in the body of Christ, there's just great sensitivity, isn't there? Or there can be. You just get this feeling that you're to you're to speak to someone, or you're to visit someone, or you're to phone somebody, or whatever. There's just an, a sensitivity. I'm not Catholic, and I don't believe I can ever, you know, need to pray to the saints. I'm not a spiritualist, so I don't believe I should ever speak to my dad. But I do believe that when I get there and maybe talk to him about things that happened after he left this earthly place, I wouldn't be surprised to, to hear him say, well, you know, I knew about that. Why should there not be a sensitivity throughout the body of Christ, living and dead, in our eyes? Because to God we're all living. There's one body. So I wouldn't be surprised to find when I want to tell my dad about things, well, actually, Kenny, I knew about that already. And though I'm not Catholic, you know what else I wouldn't be surprised to find? I wouldn't be surprised to find that he'll tell me, you know, I prayed for you every day here just as I prayed for you every day when I was down on earth. God's the God of the living, not the dead. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, not was, is, 
and that's true for all our loved ones. It's an amazing thing that we believe in, isn't it, the resurrection? It's an amazing thing. We get so used to it, the familiar can, well, we can have a sort of contempt. There's a familiarity to it that we almost fail to realize the amazing truth that we believe. Summed up in that phrase, God is the God of the living, not the dead. It's just a matter of whether we live here on earth or there in heaven. But we're always going to be the living. We're never going to be the dead. You know, there's so many um, different amazing crescendo trumpet notes as we come to the end of the story of Jesus. What about the trumpet note of the, the cross? It's an amazing trumpet note. In fact, when you, when you listen to Jesus on the cross, you think, well, well, that must be the end of the story because he announced it is finished. And you think, well, maybe that's the, the climax of everything. You know, it's an interesting word that it is finished. Sometimes we think it means, um, he's done everything that's necessary for sin and death and hell to be dealt with. In other words, I've finished the work, I've completed the mission. The interesting thing is that the word finished is actually a word for a fresh beginning. It's an end of time moment. It's a word for the end of all things. Tetelestai. Jesus is saying, this is the end of the world. This is an end of time moment. This is an everything in history has been accomplished moment. In other words, he's saying at the cross, I have opened the door into what is coming. I've opened the door into the kingdom of heaven. And nobody can ever shut what I've opened up. So it's not so much just a, a simple statement that I've done everything that's necessary. He's saying this is the, the establishment of the kingdom of God. And that's why when we come to the cross, sin is no more holding us, Satan is no more holding us, and that we can welcome all that God would give us from his eternal and heavenly and enduring kingdom to bring us into all that we were meant to be before circumstances or other people or we ourselves messed it up. In other words, he's saying, your present doesn't need to be controlled by your past. I've opened the door to the power of the kingdom that is coming. And you can experience that power to set you free right now for all that God has for you. You know, we do worship an amazing God that the cross, surely that's a climax. And, and many people see the wonder of the cross. I was over in Pakistan and I found it one of the most moving experiences in my life. I had to speak to a, a group of pastors that have been gathered from places where Christians are persecuted, and there was about 200 of them. I'd been told before I went there that um, you're not allowed to do an outreach meeting in Pakistan, that that's actually punishable by, by death. And uh, after the pastor's reading uh, meeting, the bishop said, um, come on, I'll show you into the tent where the outreach meeting is happening tonight. And I said, but we've been told we're not allowed to do that. I said, is, is this legal or is it not legal? And he said, well, it's not legal, it's not illegal, which didn't help me a lot, I have to, have to confess. There's about 3,000 people came every night. Every night people gave their lives to Jesus. 
Do you remember when Elijah calls Elisha to be his successor? He actually more or less says, Oh my Lord, what have I done to you? Because he knew the cost that would be involved in Elisha following the Lord. It's an awesome responsibility to preach in Pakistan, call people to give their lives to Jesus, knowing that the next day they might have acid flung in their face or they might be disowned by their family, or worse. And yet every night people came to Jesus. I think part of that is simply the message of the cross, that you don't have to work, 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 do, 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 in order to tentatively lay hold, hopefully, on the love and mercy of God and eternal life. It's Jesus has done everything to open the door of that kingdom. I wonder if some of us need to, maybe sounds odd to say it, because most people I think within evangelical charismatic Christianity, the cross figures somewhere near the beginning of their life. They've come to see that Jesus died for them. They've come to see that that's the way of forgiveness and they believe in Jesus as their Savior and ask him to be their Lord. I wonder if some of us need to revisit the, the trumpet call of the cross and hear the finished note. Maybe it is to know that your sins are completely forgiven again. I was saying to Anne last night that sometimes even I'm stretched about the mercy of God. We had a, a speaker when I was up in Thurso called Jim Graham. You've maybe heard of him from Gold Hill Baptist Church. And he was just not long back from speaking at Oxford Union at the, I don't know, some sort of society there, whether it was CU or whatever. And he'd said in the course of his talk, Myra Hindley was in the, was in the, um, in the news again at that time. And he said in the course of his talk that if Myra Hindley genuinely repented, and Myra Hindley would be forgiven by God. And it would be as though she'd never sinned in his eyes. And one of the students came up to him afterwards absolutely furious and said, how dare you say that? And Jim Graham just looked back at the student and he said, listen, it's my job as a minister of the gospel to declare that there is mercy and love for the most damaging and destructive of lives. When I heard Jim Graham say that in Thurso, in a way that I never thought I would, I really struggled with that. Because as a pastor, you're dealing mostly with the results of the damager and the destroyer's behavior. Did I really believe that because of the cross, there's mercy and love for the damager, for the destroyer. A third of my congregation has been sexually abused. Right now I'm dealing with someone in my congregation who's an abuser. An abuser of his son. 
an abuser of his adopted son. An abuser of his adopted son with certain disabilities. Do I really believe the cross? That there is mercy for the most damaging and destructive things that people can do. Let's bring that a bit nearer home. Do you believe that there's mercy for the most damaging and destructive thing that you've ever done? Not simply the truths that the sins that you can explain away are or whitewash, or make even seem almost respectable. But for the ones for which there's, there's no excuse, there's no mitigating factors. I'm really amazed when I look at Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is the story, remember, it's the gospel within the gospel almost. It's a, a chapter where we're we're told about three lost things. First of all, we're told about the, the lost sheep. And then we're told about the lost coin. And then we're told about the lost son. Do you know there's a progression in these stories in all sorts of ways? I, I think that many of us can believe that God could have mercy on a on a lost sheep. A sheep is just a creature of instinct. It, it doesn't know any better. And when I look at some of the folk in Western Hills, we've just had the most horrendous backgrounds with virtually no influence for good. I can see that some of them are just lost like a lost sheep. They didn't know there was another way. I remember one girl praying in our prayer meeting, thank you, Lord, for this place, because until I came here, I didn't know there was another way to do life. But now I know there is. Then moving on to the lost coin, you, you can't blame a coin for being lost. It, it has no responsibility in being lost. And friends, can I honestly say that I believe there are some people for whom there are aspects of lostness that no blame attaches to. I remember being in Ayr where my brother-in-law was a minister and I was down at the, the seafront, just walking along the seafront and I went into the, the public toilet and there was a father going in there with his wee boy who looked about two or thereabouts and he sat him down in the sink and he said, now sit there and don't move. And as he went into the toilet cubicle, he took out a syringe to go in and inject himself. Do you realize that in many of our cities, not just our cities, there will be families now where they're into their third and soon their fourth generation of drug taking. Children grow up seeing it. It's just a way of life. So I think, you know, yeah, there's a lostness that's like the lostness of a sheep. There's a lostness that's like the lostness of a coin. That wee boy will grow up taking drugs unless somehow he encounters the mercy of God.
But Jesus isn't finished with his trilogy yet. Because the third lostness scenario that he describes is one of absolute deliberate lostness. Lostness by choice. Lostness by rebellion. Lostness with a full awareness. Lostness that was rebellion against a good father who provided much. Have you ever realized the amazing scene at the end of the story? Here was this boy who had disgraced his father through willful lostness and rebellion. And he comes to himself at the end of the story and he returns. What happens when he returns? The father runs to meet him. I, I think sometimes we don't realize what that looked like. Here was an old man with skirts down to his ankles. How would he have been able to run towards his son? He would have picked up the skirts. He would have wrapped them around his waist. He would have ran towards his son, quite frankly, revealing everything. Disgracing himself publicly. But that's what grace looks like when you see it in its full depth. It is the father disgracing himself in order to welcome back his disgraceful, willingly rebellious son. And the same love that Jesus teaches there in Luke chapter 15, he displays in the cross. There was no nice piece of white linen covering Jesus. He would have been stark naked. Anybody that walked past would have been allowed to abuse him. Part of the horror of crucifixion was the shame of it all. But bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. I wonder if Satan has got hold of any one of us here today. And it's not that we can't believe in forgiveness. We can believe in forgiveness for that because I didn't know any better. Or for this where I... I just feel there wasn't really a personal responsibility. We can forgive our lostness like a sheep or a coin. Have you received forgiveness from God for the very deliberate lostness? Has Satan got hold of you? Has he got a hook in saying, yeah, you're forgiven for that and you're forgiven for that. But can God really forgive you for this? Well, think of the father disgracing himself to love his disgraceful son. Everything necessary for us to know the life that God has for us. Remember what I said earlier, who he meant us to be before circumstances or other people or I myself, like the third story, messed it up. Everything to that has been opened up by the way of the cross. 
So do some of us need to visit the cross today? Maybe some of us do need to visit the empty tomb and just rejoice again. That would be the next crescendo moment, the next trumpet blast. But let's move on from there. Because Jesus said that that wasn't the end of the story either. Do you remember what he said to Mary Magdalene? It's a strange thing. The last time I looked at this story, I, I heard God quite clearly saying, Look for the sin of Uzzah in the story of Easter. Do you remember who Uzzah was? He was the man who reached out his hand to steady the ark. Do you remember that story when David was moving the ark to Jerusalem and the oxen stumbled and the ark started to fall off and Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark and he was struck dead. And when I was reading the story of John chapter 20, I heard God say, look for the sin of Uzzah. And I thought, I can't make any sense of that. And I sort of dismissed it as I can't have heard God clearly. And then went out and got into my car and was going home. And at the first set of traffic lights, I sat behind a car whose registration was UZA. And I thought, well, I can't dismiss that. I need to go home and think, where's the sin of Uzzah here? And do you know where I found it? I found it in the most tender of places. I found it in Mary Magdalene. You can understand why she wanted that to be the end of the story. Because the one she loved was back and she was holding on to him. What does Jesus say? He said, the journey's not finished yet. You see, the ark in the Old Testament re represented the, the presence of God. And here was the ark, the journey of God's presence being interfered with by Uzzah. You know, sometimes Jesus has to say things even to his closest friends. He had to say to Simon Peter, don't influence the journey of the presence of God. Simon Peter heard Jesus saying he was going to be betrayed and he was going to suffer and he was going to die and then rise again. And he said, not so, Lord. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Don't put up your hand to influence this journey. When Jesus wanted to wash his feet, what did Simon Peter do? You, you'll never wash me, Lord. You'll never wash my feet. He was always trying to steady Jesus in his journey. And in John chapter 20, we see the same thing with Mary Magdalene. Let's just stop the journey here. This is the end of the story. What more do we need to know? You've died for our sins. You're raised from the dead. Now we can go on being friends. And what does Jesus say? Don't hold on to me. I've not yet ascended to my Father and your Father. 
to my God and your God. He wants to bring us into the arms of the Father. Remember what I was saying, it's not enough to know that we're forgiven sinners. It's not enough to know that we've got eternal life. Jesus' mission was to take us into the arms of the Father so that we would know that his Father is our Father, that his God is our God. Perhaps the first time I was here, I just um, said these truths, but they're worth repeating. You know, that Christianity is a faith that's not about our works. It's about faith in Christ. One of the favorite ways that Paul has about speaking about a Christian is that a Christian is somebody who is in Christ. In other words, if I'm in Christ, God says the same over me as he says over his son Jesus. Is it conceivable that Jesus, who sits at the right hand of God, that the Father will ever say to him, Jesus, get out of my sight, you've always been a disappointment to me. He's never going to say that. And if he doesn't say it over Jesus, he doesn't say it over you. Is it conceivable that the Father will ever turn to Christ at his right-hand side and say, you know, I'm, I'm just a, I'm a bit fed up with you? He's never going to say that. And if he doesn't say it over him, he doesn't say it over you. If you were here the very first time I, I came to um, the well, I, I illustrated that truth with something that Corey Tenboom does. She used to take her thumb and she said, there's your life. And then she would close her hand round that and say, there's your life in Christ. And then she would say, there's your life in Christ, in the love of God the Father. That's where Jesus wants to take us. Not just forgiven sinners. Not just we know that we've got eternal life, but those who know that in Christ, the Father says over me what he says over Jesus. You're my son. You're my daughter whom I love. And you bring me great joy. You know what Jesus wants to do according to my Bible? He's really looking forward to the day when he gathers us all in and he says to the Father, Dad, here I am and the children you've given me. I've not lost one of them except the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Dad, here I am and here's the children. One of the most amazing things I think that has ever happened in the whole of spiritual history is the shock that that dying thief must have got who repented. Today you'll be with me in paradise. One moment in incredible pain. The next minute in heaven, hand in hand with Jesus. Have you ever felt you've been in the wrong company? I think he must have felt that as angels and archangels and all the heavenly hosts started to praise Jesus as he walked towards the Father. 
I think that that dying thief must have said, I'll just slip to the side here. This moment belongs to you. And I think Jesus would have said to him, did I not say today you'd be with me? And he would have kept hold of his hand until he got before the Father and he would have said, here I am, Dad. Here I am, Father. And here's the first of the children you've given me. If you're content with being a forgiven sinner, Jesus is not content with that. If you're content with the idea that you've got eternal life, Jesus is not content that you're content with that. He's not content till he's brought you home to the Father's delight. Until you know that he loves you as much as he loves Jesus Christ. So is that the end of the story? The cross, the empty tomb, the being taken into the Father's delight. Well, according to my Bible, it isn't. There's a further trumpet note. In the beginning of the book of Acts, what do we read? Where Luke says about his gospel, in my former book I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. But now he's continuing to do and teach through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in and through believers. So there's the cross, there's the resurrection, there's the being taken into the Father's delight. But what about this next trumpet call, Pentecost? Do, do you know what I've come to believe as I've looked at just the renewal scene as I've been laid aside from conferences and so on? To quote General Booth's hymn, we need another Pentecost. Send the fire today. We need the power of the Spirit. We need unashamedly the baptism of the Spirit. Jo uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was the darling of the evangelical world until he started to preach that we needed a baptism in the Holy Spirit. And he said, you know, many evangelicals believe that at the point that we're converted, we've got it all. And his response to that was quite simple. Got it all in God's name, where is it? Can I ask a very simple question? And it might offend you. Have you been baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you think that's not necessary? Do you think that you got it all when you're converted? Well, maybe have the humility to ask Martin Lloyd-Jones' question. If I believe that, then in God's name, where is it? How do we come into that? Well, let me tell you just very, very briefly, and, and this will be retelling for some of you. Um, but the way it happened for me was when I was training for university in a very liberal college. And the liberal professor just challenged us as evangelicals. He said, the trouble with you evangelicals is that you don't really read what the Bible says. 
you come to it with your theology already made up and you don't actually see what the Bible says. Now, he meant that to be a red rag to a bull to us. But I took it as a real challenge. And I went home and I read the Bible and I read the Gospels and I read the book of Acts. And you know the question in my mind? Well, two questions. How did that that I was reading become this? What I saw in church life? And the other question, I don't think I've received everything. I think there's a baptism in the Holy Spirit that I have still to receive. Well, that alarmed my friends, and it alarmed the church that I went to, but I thought, no, I've got to be true to this challenge. That is what I think the Bible says. And so I ended up going along to a Pentecostal church, and it, it meant absolutely nothing to me. Although before I went, I prayed this prayer. Lord, I long to minister and be a blessing to others, but inside I feel dry and thirsty. Please fill me with the living waters of your spirit so that rivers of living water will flow out of me into the desert of human need. Please suffuse me in your Holy Spirit. I sat through the service. I thought, maybe it's been wrong. This hasn't done or said anything to me. And then right at the end, somebody stood up and gave a message in tongues, which I'd never heard before. And then somebody stood up to interpret it. And this is what they said from Jesus. You long to minister and be a blessing to others. But inside you feel dry and thirsty. Come to me and I will fill you with the living waters of my spirit. And living waters will flow out of you into the desert of human need. Come to me and I will suffuse you in my Holy Spirit. And they asked me at the end, do you want prayer? And I said yes. And they took me through to this wee back room and they prayed for me. And, and I felt something. I, I just felt the warmth of God coming into me as they prayed for me. And then there came a terribly embarrassing moment. Because I thought, oh no, they're, they're Pentecostals. They're not going to believe anything's happened unless I speak in tongues. And then this internal battle went on. I said, Lord, they're such nice people and I don't want to disappoint them. <laughs> so here's what I'm going to do. I reckon if I have to speak in tongues, I have to say something. And so I'm going to speak and I'm going to trust you to give me the words. And so I spoke. And after about five sounds, the people praying for me were deliriously happy. And I thought, well, that's nice. They're happy. And I went home. It was the very next day I was speaking to a friend on the phone. And my friend was saying, Kenny, what I long to see is a church where the lost are saved and the saved are filled and the sick are healed and the oppressed are set free and the word of the Lord comes in power. And I shouted down the phone. I said, Gavin, that's what I want. But I can't do that. And right at that point, there came wave after wave after wave of power from on high. 
And you maybe think, how do you know you weren't imagining that? Two things. My wife, she was, we weren't married then. She was living as a friend with us in the house. And um, she said, what was happening in there? I said, what do you mean? She said, all I could feel was waves of power coming out through the walls. What was happening in there? And the second way I know is that things started to happen after that in terms of ministering to other people that had never happened before. Gifts that I didn't even know existed really happened. I would know from that very moment when I walked into the house whether there was an evil spirit there. I would know when somebody was demonized. I would be given pictures. None of that had happened before that moment. Do you know what God helped me to see? A connection that I couldn't see at the time. He said, do you know why that happened? He said, it was because you were prepared to make these five sounds. You humbled yourself. You realized that you were wanting to be taken into a realm where you would never understand everything with your mind. And you humbled yourself and were willing to become like a child. Friends, when my children started to speak to me, they didn't start speaking in perfect sentences. And when they came to me with their half-formed words and sentences, do you think I said, oh, shut up and get out of my sight till you can speak properly? I just delighted that they were trying. Hold on to that story, let it con may contrast it with my father. My father and mother were not into all of this. They thought I was involved in some sort of cult. And the years passed. And when we were up in Orkney, my wife and I took ill with the flu and we had a baby. And none of, neither of us were able to look after the baby properly. It was a matter of whoever could stumble out of bed and so on. And my father went to this church where I'd received this experience. And he simply said to the pastor, Mr. Black, I'm, I'm worried about Kenny and Morag, and I'm wondering if you could pray for them. You know what Mr. Black said? He said, George, I'm not worried about Kenny and Morag, I'm worried about you. And he grabbed him. And he was about 26 stone, he sat in my father. And he prayed for him to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Where did we get this idea, God's a gentleman? <laughs> As though he'll only do what we give him permission to do. Saul never gave him permission to fling him down in the road to Damascus and to blind him. So Hugh Black just grabbed my father, sat on him and prayed for him. My father was on his way home, I mean a bit shell-shocked about what had happened. And on his way home, he was just delighting, as I said earlier, he loved to sing hymns and uh, sing them out of tune, and he was singing all his favorite hymns on the way home. Suddenly, he was gloriously, wonderfully baptized in the Holy Spirit, and this river of tongues just came flowing out of him. He got home, and my mother was furious. He took the next day off his work just to stay in the house and sing in tongues. My wife, my, my mother by lunchtime couldn't stand it. She kicked him out of the house 
and sent him back to his office. My dad sat at his office looking out at a car with a fish sign in the road below. And he looked at it for an hour and a quarter and he saw the man coming back and he tore out his office and went down to the man and he said, do you speak in tongues? And the man said, yes, as a matter of fact, I do. And the man said to my father, do you speak in tongues? And my father said, no, but I can sing in them. Do you want to hear? And he, he filled the center of Glasgow with these out-of-tune tongues. My mother came into the same thing a few years later. She was at a meeting where folk were being prayed for to be blessed by the Holy Spirit. And uh, she didn't really like it. She never was happy with it. But she had a friend called Margaret who was sitting with her. And our friend called Margaret said, you know, Margaret, I would really like to go down to the front and be prayed for. The only thing is, I don't want to go alone. And my mother, Margaret, said, well, I'll take you down. So they went down together. And the pastor came along and prayed, Lord bless Margaret. Well, God got the wrong Margaret. <laughs> my, my mother was just sent sprawling over the floor. And my father saw this from the gallery, and he came rushing down, and he knelt on one side of her, and he was going, peace, peace, Margaret. And the pastor was on the other side saying, give her more, Lord, give her more, Lord. And she got more. She got so much more that she was filled with a holy laughter. That had never happened to any of us before. Doesn't happen much in Scotland, period. And she was filled with a holy laughter. And, you know, when my father phoned me, all I, I lifted up the phone when he was filled with the Spirit and I heard this horrible noise. My mother phoned me and all I heard was hilarious laughter. And she was laughing so much that she collapsed against the wall and her backside got wedged into the heater and got burnt because she just couldn't stop laughing to rescue herself. Friends, there's, there's lots of ways it can happen. I think that's all I'm saying. You know, secretly I've always longed my experience could have been like my father. I just felt my experience of being filled with the Spirit was painful and slow and searching and had to make these decisions, will I do this or will I not? And my father, it just happened. My mother, it happened because of mistaken identity by God. <laughs> the, the pastor that I mentioned, Hugh Black, he, he gives a very good prayer. He says, will you just pray, Lord, if there's anything that I have to receive still in terms of the baptism in the Spirit, will you help me to experience it? So I'm not saying what you must do or you mustn't do. I'm saying will you have the humility to pray that prayer? Lord, is there anything that I have still to receive in terms of the baptism in the Spirit? Then help me to receive it. Time's marching on. Let me tell you one last trumpet call. Maybe you need to hear about the cross again. Maybe you need to hear about the resurrection. Maybe you need to know the Father's delight, just Jesus taking you by the hand, saying, here I am, Dad, with another of the children you've given me.
Maybe you need to ask that prayer. Lord, is there anything I've still to receive? And friends, can I, just another wee uh, sideline. Even if you have spoken in tongues and experienced the gifts of the Spirit, still have the humility to pray that prayer. I remember going out to a meeting once, and I said, Lord, what do you want me to tell people? And he gave me that scene out of Braveheart. Have you seen the film Braveheart? We, we, we like to believe it's all true. It's not all true, but we like to believe it's true. And uh, there's that scene in Braveheart. It's the Battle of Stirling Bridge. And do you remember where Wallace has invented these pikes, these long spears? And, and the cavalry is coming fast towards them. And every soldier, or, or fighter anyway, and Wallace's side just wants to put down their swords or their axes and pick up these long spears as the cavalry gets closer. And do you remember what he says? He just says, hold. And hold, hold, until the very last minute. That part is true, by the way. <laughs> that is true to history. You know, I was going out to this meeting and that scene came to mind. And I said, oh, I see what you're saying, Lord. You're wanting me to say to these folk, hold on in the place of prayer, the way that I did for seven years until that happened. You're wanting me to challenge them to do the same. And he said, no, Kenny, I wasn't telling you it for that reason. I was asking you, why didn't you hold? You got tongues, you got gifts of the Spirit. But have you truly received a real baptism in wind and fire? That's what the Bible promises. And so I still pray regularly. Lord, if there's anything I've still to receive, will you help me to receive it? So the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost. But, but one final thing, that the story wasn't over. Because the reason for Pentecost ultimately was what? You shall receive power and you'll be my witnesses. There's to be a passing on of it all. And sometimes, you know, it's not my main thing, but sometimes God speaks to me prophetically. And um, I just want to end with something, and it's so interesting hearing what, what Anne was saying about a new ministry beginning in the well where you're praying for babies. Do you know what God said to me prophetically? Two things. He said, first of all, pray for youth that young people will have sovereign experiences of God. That they'll just meet with God. I mean, we're hearing stories, aren't we, about Muslims meeting with God in dreams or whatever. Why can't young people in this country meet with God in that way? That we just start praying Lord, would you literally pour out your spirit on our sons and daughters' generation so that they'll prophesy, so that they'll have a real and living experience of you? Would you fulfill Isaiah chapter 54, that all our children will be taught by the Lord? 
You know, God can meet with us sovereignly without any other Christians being around. And although the power of the Spirit is there for us to be witnesses, let's remember what the Bible says, where Peter and John say, we are witnesses of these things, and so too is the Holy Spirit. We need to be faithful, but we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to bear his own witness as well. Somebody in our congregation lately, nobody told him about it. He'd never heard even of tongues. And he came into the cafe one day and he said, I don't know what's happened to me, I need to, I need to speak to somebody. We said, well, why do you need to speak to somebody? He said, well, I was sitting in my living room and all of a sudden I, I started speaking like a Klingon from Star Trek. That's the way spiritual things are talked about in Western Hills. He said, was this, was this language spouting out my mouth? I thought I'd turned into a Klingon. God can meet folks sovereignly. And we need to pray for our young people that they will. And the second thing that I believe God spoke to me prophetically was not about the youth generation, but pray specifically for those aged zero to five. Pray that a generation will grow up who know the God of Jacob and seek after him. Will not have to return to him because they've never departed from him in the first place. Who grow through their teenage years knowing him. Into adulthood knowing him. Pray for the zeros to fives. See, God does like to mess with our theology, doesn't he? That somehow, unless we repent, we can't be saved, and unless we're saved, we can't be filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was filled in the womb with the Holy Spirit. And sadly, some people now within the womb, because of the way society is, are being filled with unholy spirit. It's really, really important to pray for the noughts to fives. And by not, I mean from the moment of conception. Right through. So that a generation arise who know their God. And according to my Bible, those who know their God will do exploit. So which of the trumpet calls do you need to hear? Do you need to hear about the cross afresh that even my most willful, disgraceful and disgracing God sin has been taken out of the picture because of the cross? Has Satan still got a hook in there and he can reel you in with guilt and shame any time he wants to? Is it time for you to know that the cross has set you free to belong to another kingdom? A kingdom that will never end. A kingdom that you'll never be kicked out of for all eternity. Do you need afresh the hope of eternal life? Have you lost loved ones? 
I put in the name George. Do you need a greater assurance that God is the God of the living, not the dead, that those who leave this life trusting in Jesus, they're still alive? And there really will one day be a glorious reunion in his eternal kingdom. And there'll be no more sorrow, no more crying. Death itself will be passed. And God will wipe away every tear. Do you need to let Jesus take you into the Father's delight? Not stop with being forgiven and knowing you're going to heaven, but that he's taken you into the arms of his Father and your Father, his God and your God. Does Pentecost need to happen to you? Do you need a fresh awareness of the missionary task? To think towards those who are younger and what needs to be passed on and what needs to be prayed in. Let's just sit in the presence of God again and shut our eyes and again we'll ask the prayer team just to be uh, ready around the, the edges of the hall and if our worship folk can come back that would be great as well. Let's just close our eyes in the presence of God. There's nothing holy about closing our eyes. It's just um, when there's other things going on and other people, it maybe helps us to avoid distractions. So let's just be in the presence of God for a moment. <clears throat>